Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. High prices are an enduring feature of the United States healthcare system. Traditional market forces haven't seemed to work to bring them down, which led some to wonder if we need a new approach. Why not harness the purchasing behavior of consumers who provide downward cost pressure in pretty much every other sector of the economy? Enter the idea of high deductible health plans, health insurance with, as the name implies, a high deductible, which presumably should make consumers more careful with their purchases. The role of high deductible health plans in creating health market efficiencies is the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Sherry Glee, Dean and Professor of Public Service at NYU's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service. Dr. Gleed and co-authors published a paper in the June 2022 issue of Health Affairs examining the evolution of high-deductible plans and companion health savings accounts, which are tax-favored saving vehicles offered in conjunction with the high-deductible plans. They found that these plans no longer serve their original purpose of encouraging cost consciousness and reducing spending. Instead, they provide regressive tax breaks disproportionately utilized by higher income people. We'll discuss this finding and the broader topics in today's episode. Dr. Gleed, welcome to the program. Hi, Alan. Sherry, I'm going to call you Sherry because we've worked Please. together for so long now that we've gotten the formalities out of the way. Uh, so I enjoy every conversation I have with you, and I don't expect this to be an exception. You are an economist, and economists like markets, and consumers are a critical part of markets. So why were, or maybe still are, some economists enthusiastic about the possibility that the high deductible health plan approach could yield healthcare efficiencies that we just couldn't get any other way? This is a really interesting question. I was thinking about it a little bit. You know, um, when you ask economists, why are healthcare prices, why are healthcare costs actually so high, not, not even prices, right? Um, they're looking for a market failure. They're trying to figure out something must be wrong in the market to make this happen, right? And quite a long time ago, I think it may have been as early as the early 1970s, the economists began to look at this issue called moral hazard, this idea that people who have insurance are, are insulated from the cost of the services that they buy, and they're going to buy more services than they would otherwise. Surely true, right? Um, in fact, we know that's true. There's lots of evidence suggesting that that's true. But the problem with moral hazard is that it isn't a policy problem. It's a feature of insurance markets. It's not a thing that the government does. It just happens anytime you have insurance. In fact, it happens all the time. We live in a world full of moral hazard in almost everything we do. Um, and and so it took a little while until economists realized that, like tr thoughts, tried to think through, like where's the policy problem that's generating this moral hazard? And what they settled on was the tax exclusion for employer-sponsored health insurance. So. The tax exclusion for employer-sponsored health insurance basically says that if you get um, paid, you get your compensation from your employer in the form of wages, you have to pay taxes on those wages. But if you get your compensation from your employer in the form of health insurance, you don't have to pay taxes on that health insurance. And so that provides an incentive for employers to give you more generous health insurance than they otherwise would and you know, lower wages. And that more generous health insurance exacerbates the effect of moral hazard. And now we found the policy problem, right? So we, we found the market failure, then we found the policy problem, and then people said, okay, so if we fix the policy problem, we can kind of 
back out to what would be the most efficient situation. Well, I'm glad you gave this some thought because that's a very succinct way of thinking about the evolution of the intellectual side of this. Um, before you go on, since I did interrupt you already, um, it's really hard to talk, particularly given where your paper goes, it's hard to talk about high deductible health plans without also talking about health savings accounts, even though they're they're separate phenomena, but we think of them together and they're particularly relevant to this whole notion of tax equity. So since you raised the tax exclusion, why don't we bring HSAs into the conversation? Can you introduce them? Sure. Here we are, ready to go to HSAs. That was the next thing I was going to go to. Okay. So what are we going to do about the employer-sponsored, the exclusion for employer-sponsored health insurance? You know, economists had been pushing for a long time under Reagan even to try and get rid of that uh, tax exclusion, but that was not going anywhere because no one wanted to raise taxes. You know, Obama did it for a while and then it didn't happen, whatever. But some clever economists, I actually don't know who it was, had this idea that, okay, if you can't beat them, join them. So what we're going to do is we're going to undo that moral hazard effect by creating an alternative health plan that has the feature that it has a high deductible, the kind of high deductible we think is most efficient, the best way to get rid of moral hazard. And then to compensate people for that high deductible, we're going to let them save money and get that tax break that they would have otherwise gotten only on their premium on the health savings account that goes along with this high deductible plan. You can only get that tax break if you get the high deductible plan. And it's a great little tax break because you can put lots of money in the health savings account. It keeps rolling over. Uh, you can collect it when you retire and you don't have to pay extra tax on it. So it's a great savings vehicle for people. We want people to save more and we will have undone that long you know, policy to market failure logic. So I think it's really important to note that the tax-favored health savings account was actually an equity provision because what we wanted to do was not make it disadvantageous to get the high deductible plan, which of course has a lower premium and therefore less tax benefit associated with it. So we don't want you to feel like, oh, don't buy these because they're disfavored because you get less of a benefit. We're going to top up your benefit back to the same direction it would have been if you didn't have a high deductible. But we're going to solve the moral hazard by saying you can roll it over so you don't you have you still have an incentive not to spend the HSA, but you don't have a tax disadvantage for for having a lower premium for just a high deductible plan. So there was actually a like a fairness argument in favor of creating HSAs as companions to, to high deductible plans. Do I have that? Right? Or at least it was an incentive. That was sort of the incentive. You could think of it as fairness or simply as the incentive to get the high deductible plan, to choose the high deductible plan. You get this way to, to save money tax-free, right? And, and eventually you can use that money for anything and it doesn't have to be healthcare. That was sort of the key point here. The key point in the HSA argument is that money doesn't have to be used for healthcare. It can be used for anything after you retire, right? You have to hold on to it until then, but then you can use it for anything. Um, and that's the, and so we create this fungibility between other things in healthcare in a non-tax favored way, but within this tax favored you know, incentives. Okay. So very clever. Very clever. I'm not going to ask you to walk me through all of the evidence, but we've built up quite an evidence base regarding particularly consumer behavior in the wake of these new plans. And the question is, did they achieve their goals? So here's what we know from that evidence base. Um, the first thing, which I think um, comes really out of that 
early moral hazard discussion and even the Rand Health Insurance exper Experiment of the late 1970s is that if people are faced with very high deductible health plans, they use less services. Now, this is just the high deductible piece. So let me come back to the HSA piece afterwards. Most of the early literature really focused on what happens when you raise people, when you put people in high deductible plans, period, compared to regular plans. And not surprisingly, they use fewer services. It turns out they have no idea which services not to use. So they use fewer beneficial services. They use you know, fewer unnecessary services, but they're not particularly clever at knowing which ones to use. Moreover, they actually, there's some recent literature that suggests that they cut back on useful drugs. So there's been a, a lot of discussion about that. But what's really striking in light of the policy is that almost all of that research looked only at the high deductible plans and really didn't look at the health savings account component of it and how that piece, you know, sort of was part of the puzzle. And that seems like a really important part of the piece because the the thesis is the consumer sort of pretends that that HSA isn't there. They're focused on, I have a high deductible, I'm going to be really cost conscious. And yes, I have this over there in case I need it, but it's not going to reduce how careful I am with my spending. But then you start amassing this pot and you also have really different implications if you're sick and you're emptying it out every year as opposed to if you're relatively healthy and it's building up over time. So what happened as we started looking at the eight? Oh, and I should also note, not everyone had an HSA. No, many people don't. So there's also a great equity issue here. I mean, there's a lot of equity issues around the HSAs because, um, first of all, you know, it, it means putting money aside, which people, some people have money to put aside and some people don't. It means putting, it, the incentive is that this is an extra opportunity to put money aside in a tax-favored way. But there's a lot of people who haven't maxed out their IRAs and other existing tax-favored savings vehicles. So this is a particularly useful savings vehicle for people who have already amassed a lot of money in other savings vehicles because it gives you another tax-favored saving. So there's a lot of inequity that's just, or potential inequity that's built into the structure of these things sort of right from the get-go. Um, and and that that is definitely a challenge here. But the, And the other thing that made this even more complicated is that over time, Congress in its Infinite wisdom. Infinite, way, infinite, infinite wisdom, wisdom is the phrase you're looking for. Term, you know, expanded the scope of the things that you can cover under your HSA. And you may notice as you hit the CVS website or whatever it is, that there's now like little buttons that say this is HSA eligible. And a lot of stuff is now HSA eligible that you might not have otherwise been able to buy under your health insurance plan. Notably, for example, dental care, which you couldn't have which most health insurance plans don't cover, but you can pay for through your HSA, as well as, you know, your eyeglasses and all those other things. Um, so there's a lot, you know, Congress is very easily persuaded to extend the tax break. Um, and that's what they did. Now we've got sort of a situation where there are high deductible plans and people with these health savings accounts that they can use to pay for a whole slew of extra things. Let me just note one thing in the whole design of this. Right from the get-go, actually, we had an earlier piece in Health Affairs back in 2005 when, or 2006 when Dahlia Remler and I first looked at these things. And we said, you know, this is all very well and good, but what are you comparing these high deductible plans with HSAs to? That's really important because whether you're increasing or decreasing people's cost sharing or what they face really depends on what they would have had if they didn't have an HSA. I mean, if they didn't have a high deductible plan and an HSA. So even at the time that we wrote that the earlier paper, 
what we noted is that most people had some deductible in their health insurance, right? And if you now had an HSA, then actually you were getting tax favored money for that first $350 or whatever, which you didn't have before. So we'd actually reduced your initial cost sharing. And moreover, we actually reduced your cost sharing if you had a lot of spending too. So, so right from the beginning, the issue, the thing was that HSAs combined with high deductible health plans as a solution to moral hazard was an obvious answer if the, if the alternative was a free plan with no deductibles and no cost sharing and nothing, right? But that is not what existed in the world, even at that time. And it's certainly not what exists in the world today. Well, we need to talk about the changing world of health insurance because that comparison is central to your paper. We'll have that conversation after we take a short break. The innovative online Master of Science in Health Policy and Law from UCSF and UC Law San Francisco merges study in health policy and law and makes it possible for you to work while pursuing your degree. Even better, you'll be able to employ your new knowledge to your career in real time. Prepare to lead the future of health. Apply by the March 31st priority deadline to join the fall 2024 class. Learn more at uclawsf.edu forward slash HPL. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Sherry Gleed about high deductible health plans and health savings accounts and the role that, that combination plays in consumers being more cost conscious. Before the break, we were just getting to this notion that you can't look at the effects of these plans without asking the question compared to what. And from the day that HSAs and high deductible plans became a policy provision in federal law to now, there have been big changes in health insurance. Can you say a little bit about those changes and why that has an effect on what we believe to be the effects of high deductible plans and health savings accounts? So when Congress wrote the high deductible plan HSA legislation, they put into it a provision that said that the minimum deductibles in high deductible plans that could qualify for these HSAs would rise at the rate of inflation. Um, so they would be flat. And that was, you know, seemed like a reasonable thing to do at the time. What has happened over time, though, is that the deductibles in non-qualified high deductible plans or plans that don't have an HSA with them have increased. You've, you've written about, I mean, there's been a lot of writing about this over time. And so the difference between the minimum deductible that's allowed in a high deductible plan and the average deductible that people employer plans that don't have high deductibles in them have, has grown. Um, and, and the gap even in terms of what the actual deductibles in the high deductible plans has, uh, has grown. So H, HDHPs, high deductible plans with HSAs, now don't look that different from conventional health insurance plans, but the conventional health insurance plans don't have this nifty savings vehicle associated with them. So I get so I have a traditional plan through my employer, but what is not covered by my plan, I have to pay for after tax because I have a traditional plan. You're saying if I had a qualified plan, I could have a health savings account. The part that isn't covered by the plan would also be tax favored. That could be really nifty and great for me, but and actually just this year that was offered to us and I was like, "What?" Uh, I, so because all of these numbers have changed. So who's taking up 
these different types of plans that leads you to wonder about the effects that they're having? So the high deductible plans and the, with their HSAs are most attractive to high income people. And even especially within that group to high income people who already have wealth because they do require you to, you know, they, they do give you this opportunity to accumulate assets. So there's been a lot of work showing that these plans are quite uh, regressive in their um, relationship to income. What we see is that even people who have high deductible plans with HSAs, if they have lower incomes and lower assets, have lower balances in those high, in those HSAs. They just don't have as much money to put aside. Um, and that means that they're more likely to exhaust them and be facing the full cost of their high deductible without that health savings protection. Um, so so there has been this long-standing problem that these plans are that these plans are regressive in a way that um, I think is that that piece of it has been kind of recognized, but not so much the piece that says, you know, even the balances vary um, uh, among populations. So we're seeing more and more literature kind of showing that point. So I really get this. Uh, it almost it seems intuitive, but it's good to have the data behind it to show that this is a, a regressive provision. But the good thing is, you know a lot about a lot of things in healthcare other than high deductible health plans. And so what I want to do is spend a little bit of time asking you about some of the implications of this that go in directions that might not be as straightforward as looking at regressivity. So one issue that is very top of mind at Health Affairs, if you read what we publish, is there's all kinds of changes in payment models going on right now. People are trying to move from volume to value, and they're moving to bundles and accountable care and all of these kinds of things. And the original idea, this isn't about the regressivity, it's about the sort of consumer behavior, is that consumers would be shopping well, it seems to me as a consumer, we're all shopping for really different things and payers are paying for really different things. So how does consumer behavior as a, as a uh, force for downward pressure even, how do we even think about that in a world of these new ways of paying and new ways of organizing care? So here's another sort of one of those long intellectual history stories. That's what comes from getting to be older in this world, right? When we first thought about consumerism in healthcare, we had this idea that Alan Enthoven had been pushing. Remember that way back in the in the 1980s, in the early days, right? That people managed were, competition. Managed competition, right? We were going to have competition where people would choose among health plans, and that there's a lot of you know it sounds like a really nice idea. It didn't somehow pan out, um, and people kind of gave up on it, right? So. People are not going to choose among health plans. We're not seeing those health plans show up in this way. What we have to do is just sort of take out the middleman and have consumers look for themselves for the best combination of price and quality. And then we have this whole move towards price transparency and you know quality metrics and whatever. And there's lots of literature in the high deductible plan um, space because that's where these things came out first, looking at how people respond to these websites. And, and the answer is they don't. I mean, they just don't. There's like, you can find some little effect of some particular service in some particular way. But for the most part, people don't look at these things. Um, and, you know, if you go back to the Rand Health Insurance experiment, it turns out that, that the findings of that experiment remain true today, which is to say, um, the main effect of cost sharing on people's behavior is to decide whether to go to the doctor in the first place or not. And once they go to the doctor, they just do whatever the doctor says, including going to whichever specialist or whichever diagnostic facility or whatever it is the doctor sends them to. They're not going to second guess their doctor. And all of the websites in the world don't seem to make them want to do that. 
Um, I don't think it's that surprising, actually. So we had this big consumer movement, which was dr driven by price transparency and high deductibles. And that didn't work either, right? Because people didn't do what we thought they would do. Um, and we don't even need to talk about how awful that is from a regressivity perspective, right? I mean, the, 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 the potential for people to have the time and the energy and the ability to make these decisions is, is surely going to vary uh, systematically with, with their characteristics. So now we've kind of gone back in another direction, which is, okay, no, we're gonna, we're kind of gonna do managed competition light. We're gonna have people, we're gonna have these insurance companies that do this kind of management thing and people are gonna kind of sort of choose which management thing, although they don't really know what's going on. And that's how we're gonna get competition in the system. Sounds really likely to succeed. <laughs> <laughs> the way it's you kind of, it. I mean, I, I think it's kind of depressing, right? Like, you know, I actually, I'm a pretty free markety person, as you know, um, but I don't know how to make this thing actually generate what we want it to do. And I, I, I haven't seen a model that's gotten us there yet. Well, I, I let's push on this a little bit. First of all, if Alan Entoven were sitting here, he would say, I never gave up on managed competition. We just never structured the markets correctly because we subsidize in ways that don't make people price sensitive at the plan level. I know you've heard him say that, but that is definitely how he views it. And he does view there as being some markets where we've tried it. And it does seem to have some of the benefits that we would expect. But let's step, let's sort of step back and then step in. I mean, first of all, is engaging consumers as a force for efficiency a reasonable thing to want? As you say, you you are an economist. That is sort of your the way you kind of expect things to work. Um, is there a way to do this and we just haven't figured it out? Or are we trying to answer the wrong question? There surely are dimensions of healthcare where that is not an unreasonable thing to do. Um, and I think the piece of it that the RAND piece, which I think is is the is sort of right fundamentally, is that there is a question about whether you pursue an episode of care. And that does seem like a question that ultimately sits with the consumer. Um, and when, one of the things that we see around the world actually is that many countries use some form of cost sharing at that very initial um, idea, you know, that 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 you don't just run to the doctor every time something is wrong. And and you don't want that cost sharing to be very high, but it's not, a, it's not, doesn't seem inappropriate for most people to put some onus on the patient to make a decision about whether they are going to the doctor or not. I think that's okay. Um, I also think that, that on some level, Enthoven is right, or there is some other way to, to structure it, which says that once you've made the decision to go to the doctor, you don't have a whole lot of information. The doctor has gone to medical school. Right. It doesn't it's not it's not we wouldn't if we think about the other transactions we do like this in our lives, you decide how much money to put into your mutual fund and then somebody invests it for you. And you don't go. Most people, I mean, there are some people who want to go there and, and buy their individual stocks and Bitcoin or whatever. But most of us, we just sit back and let somebody else do it. And I think that's probably how this ought, you know, the, how the best kind of market here would work. It's an old Mark Polly idea, right? Your primary care doctor sort of manages your care. You could put your primary care doctor at some sort of financial risk. So they balance something rather. Now there's big problems with putting primary care doctors at financial risk. There's lots of, you know, I, but I think that there are models here that could be potentially maybe feasible, but I don't think they load on the consumer. I just think that 
you know, medical school's gotten more and more complicated and longer. How on earth am I going to figure out whether I need an MRI and which, which am I going to read which MRI system is the best? That's, that's, that doesn't make any sense. Well, you know, we've got these accountable care organization where we attribute patients to things and that probably gets a little bit at your people not even quite knowing what they're in, but in Medicare Advantage, you do have to enroll in the plan and it's not a secret. And of course, enrollment there is growing. We can talk about how much the plans are paid and whether or not that's appropriate, but we have created some segments of the market where people are given a choice and there is some price sensitivity. It's when we sort of hide the ball or half hide the ball, I think it's hard to know how to harness consumers if they don't even know where they are. That That's a bit of a puzzle. Well, look, as we're coming to the end of our conversation, I just want to ask uh, two last questions. First of all, put this all together, including your paper. Is it time, based on your analysis, to simply eliminate the tax-favored health savings account option and say it's regressive. We're not really getting much benefit out of pairing it with high deductible plans. We're getting a lousy tax policy. Is it? Is your conclusion just it's time to let it go? I don't really see what benefit it adds. Um, it is not. It's no longer keeping people from using services. Um, it's actually on some things like dental, it's actually just a free new additional gift we're giving people. We've actually just expanded the scope of the tax break for health and for health insurance. Um, I think it's an incredibly politically impossible thing to pull back. But at least we there's there's endless discussion in Congress about extending it even further. And if 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 our paper does anything, I hope that it will just put the brakes on some of that conversation. You know this world well, and that really leads to my last question, which is I introduced you, of course, as dean of the Wagner School at NYU. Um, you've done a lot of really interesting things in your career. I'm not going to read your entire bio, but um, I think it is a question that I hope I can uh, ask as we wrap up here. Um, talk a little bit about the path from uh, being an economist through various forms of government service uh, to being the dean of uh, one of the leading schools of public policy, public service. It's just uh, give us a little insight into how you, how you made that path and, and uh, what it's like to walk along it. You know, I, I, I did it entirely by accident. I did not really intend for this to happen. I was incredibly fortunate that opportunities came my way. And because I'm really bad at saying no, I took every opportunity that came my way. And, and I've had a fabulous, wonderful career because of that. That That is definitely true. I think there's a lot to be said if you're a policy researcher, an economist, um, or any other field of policy research, to actually spend time in government um, and and to see how things work um, and to actually operate in an environment that's very, very different from academia. I actually did some writing about how working in government is so different from working in academia. Um, it's a little bit, and as you know, too, you know, there's, there's something kind of addictive about it. It's, there's something really fun about getting a project together and being on a team. And, and like I tell people, the thing about being in government is not only are you on a team, but there's actually an opposing team. So, um, you know, it's, you, you almost have a, 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 for those of us who were never sports people, this is an exciting, uh, exciting opportunity. I, it's great to, to see both sides of it. And that's been really fortunate. And, and I went to Wagner because one of the things that struck me in government is how smart the people I worked with were and also how important um, the, the sort of 
bureaucratic staff and the quality of the bureaucratic staff was to the success of programs. I mean, we, we all talk about things and just hope that they'll be implemented well. But a lot of that implementation really depends on having people who are thoughtful, who care about what they're doing, who do it well, um, staffing up those positions all the way through the bureaucracy. And so this is a great opportunity to sort of produce the next generation of people doing that. Well, that's so nicely said, and it I couldn't ask for a stronger and more thoughtful person in that role, Sherry. Um, it's been great to work with you over many years in many different capacities. Appreciate your scholarship, your paper in the June issue, and today for being my guest on Health Policy. Thank you for inviting me. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to a Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening. <laughs>